Welcome to another episode of Kulubert and Kulubroid Radio. In fact, we are on episode 33. Uh, our guest tonight is Chelsea Isdainer of Smoldering Serpents. And we're going to be talking about naturalistic keeping with colubrids and colubroids. Um, anybody that is anyone that's been on social media has almost certainly invariably bumbled into smoldering serpents photographs of their incredibly awesome setups. And I know I can speak for Clint and I. We have both been wowed many times. And so we want to know how they do that. Uh, but before we get into that conversation, it is you know, status quo for us to just kind of give an update. Um, it's been a little while since uh, we recorded. I think it's been maybe two or three weeks, um, something like that. Uh, That's right. I am now in the summer. Thank you, sweet baby Jesus. The semester is dead. <laughs> I, I, I have never bugged out of West Liberty so fast in my life. I had to go to graduation on Saturday after classes were done. And then at 7 a.m., I was in the Pittsburgh airport heading to an airplane to fly to Minnesota to start one of my grad students' projects with hognose snakes. Um, if you've listened to the show, you probably know, because that's when we had started, that I did a 10-day trip to Kansas in hopes of finding Nasicus and found over a couple hundred snakes and not a single one of the little boogers was a live western hog. And Minnesota has... It destroyed the strike, and we ended up getting a handful of them, not tons of them, um, but we did find the animals, and I can tell you that seeing wild Nasicus and then seeing what the Nasicus looked like in human care and then seeing wild Nasicus again, it, I, I, think, I don't think there's any better way for me to start this book because I'm going to just go on record saying right now in front of everyone, wild Nasicus are fat. They're not, they're not like a little fat. They're like Captain Tubbs waddling around in their, you know, vivs. Uh, and, and, and my grad student's thesis is investigating that. Um, the other thing I feel need to say is we didn't just go up to Minnesota and, you know, herp around. Nasicus are a protected species there. And I was working with two wonderful, incredibly knowledgeable biologists. Um, one guy named Chris Smith and another a woman named Erica Hoagland, and I mean, they put us on the animals. We, I got a bunch of cool data, so I, I brought my uh, solarometer, so I got UV readings from where the snakes were resting, which was cool. I got a ton of temperature data, so when we saw the snakes out, I temped them before we touched them. I temped the ground around them, um, and it was just a wonderful way to start the summer because I got to be scientist nerd zach and uh we'll flat out tell you that my perspective has changed so that's the biggie and then other than that um i have plenty of animals dropping eggs uh the king snakes it's really funny um i didn't think i did well with the king snakes and now i think there's eight clutches in the incubator and there's four more so i bred 12 pairs and i think i'm getting 12 clutches so there's that and then i talked about the hognose snakes for west liberty and uh, we have, we definitely have plenty of hognose snakes on the way. So, um, yeah. And then I guess the only other thing I have, which was, we all have those like heartaches <laughs> where you're like, oh, I guess you were gravid. Huh? Um, and my heartache was I have a lavender false water cobra and then I have two hets. I have a European het 
and I have um, a het from Sawfish Reptiles, and I'm pretty sure it was I, I, I brought I paired my lav with both of the het females. They're a tiny bit on the small side, and I just kept looking at the girls, thinking it, it didn't work. The male was too small. Oh well. And uh, when I was checking all the cages the night I got back from Minnesota, I looked in the hide box from like across the room and thought, "How? Oh, damn it! You didn't eat that rat I gave you." And then I got close and was like, "Wow, that rat's really shaped like an egg, and it's on top of another dead rat, which is on top of another dead rat." I was like, "Oh, son of a bitch!" And there were six gigantic eggs. Like these were like falsies have big eggs. These were two times the normal size of a false water cobra egg, and I think they're still viable. I think that she dropped them like two or three days before I got in, but they were in her eye box, so she just went all over them. So they're in the incubator anyway, and we'll see what happens with them. But of all the freaking pairs, man, that's a that's a clutch that could potentially feed my collection for the next year. <laughs> so, right, right. Anyway, but yeah. That's my updates. How about you, Clint? Okay, buddy, sit back, because normally <laughs> I feel like I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, I've just been busy, this and that, whenever I'm giving updates, but there is so much that's gone on nice. in the past few weeks that I want to share and, and want to talk about. So um, first, clubrids are starting to lay. Mm-hmm. You know, finally, I'm, I'm running a little later than what I normally do, uh, but we've got a few species of milk snakes now in the incubator, cool. uh, black rat morphs in the incubator. Uh, cow kings, uh, I think maybe Mexican black kings already, or if not, she's about to, but, uh, just gravid females all over the place. So, you know, it's, I, I've had several ball Python clutches already, but it's now that I'm getting the clue, yeah. I'm feeling more like myself, you know, <laughs> I got you. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still me. I'm still me. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> uh, few, um, some bamboo rats, you know, things like that starting to lay. So, so that's really, ex- Oh, uh, uh, Chinese king rats. Nice. Got eggs on the ground. And I mean, those have been hit and miss for me over mm-hmm. the years. So I think we're going to have a good year with them. And I think really with them, the the difference I found is getting them out of a rat, getting them in a cage again, mm-hmm. and boom, we, we start producing over. So um, super excited with where we're going there. Uh, so that, that's one. Two, uh, this was big. And I alluded uh, to this on a previous episode when I talked about a um, – a manufacturer of caging mm-hmm. and racks was going to let us carry them. So now that it's official and it's here, I can kind of talk a little bit more about that because it was super exciting. Uh, we now carry Bavarian Electronics racks and caging in the store. Very nice. And the cool thing about it was it's not only does does Rich let us carry them, Rich from Reptile Basics delivered them himself to the facility, toured everything, uh, we had a great time, gave me some tips on different pieces and some other areas that we're going to work together that he's helping me out on. So, uh, you know, I kind of fanboyed out yeah, for a minute. I got you. Having, you know, I've been buying from Rich, and I've talked to him many times at shows, but I've been getting things from Reptile Basics for years and years, long before Metazotics was created. So to have him here walking around, looking over everything, and and finding out, I mean, how many things he keeps yeah. himself. You know, mm-hmm. and I thought he was just kind of out of it, but no, I mean, it was, that was a great Oh, time. that's fantastic. So super, super excited on those. Um, let's see, next up, and here's something I hadn't even told you that I was going to do yet, Zach, so forgive me. That's okay. Um, You're forgiven. So, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that's so neat when it happens, um, there are moments where we have individuals who literally drive hours to come visit the shop, right? And that, that's just such a good feeling. And um, 
weekend before last, we had a family that drove three hours Mm -hmm. one way just to come to the shop. And it's the second time they've done it. And I know that they're listeners. Uh I know that they're going to hear this. So I hope you know I'm talking about you (laughs) whenever you hear this. uh, Because I I can tell you, as much as they may have enjoyed it, it certainly means so much more to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it got me thinking um, that... You know, we have individuals that that listen to the podcast all over the country, you know, and maybe abroad at this point. Um, So I want to do something Mm -hmm. for the listeners. Um, So write this down, all the listeners out there. um, By the time this episode is aired, um, I will have a discount loaded into the website. Nice. And the discount is... CC Radio. Again, that is CC Radio. And if you put that in, you'll be eligible for 5% off of anything at any point on the website. Oh, that's awesome. And so that way it's just for the list. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's because when we came in and he's talking about the podcast, I'm like, you know what? I, I need to I need to do something, you know, for the, the CCR listeners. So CC Radio, and that'll give you 5% off of anything. Um, okay. So still going. You're still, still going, more. man. <laughs> now, now, I'm telling you, that's what I said. So now here's the two big things that I, I've learned. Well, one thing I learned and one thing that's about to happen. Um, something cool that it's not going to be an immediate thing, but you talking about having hog nose mm-hmm. and falsies. So I sent you yeah. a message, Zach, here recently. In Indiana, we have often had a um, – um, it's – sorry, my phone's starting off, threw me off. In Indiana, the law has stated that we couldn't have any rear fang venomous. Mm-hmm. And um, that was just kind of black and white. No rear fang venous, venomous. So, um, but anytime I would go to shows, I would see hog nose all over the place yeah. in Indiana. So DNR is obviously it was kind of looking the other way, but I didn't want to kind of go into a gray area. So I emailed DNR, got in touch with them, and finally I've heard back, and they provided me a list of anything that is not deemed venomous, true venomous, by the Indiana DNR, we can have without permits. Um, So we had um, on the list, hognose, obviously, several um, boiga, and so I'm like (laughs) pumped about that now. And then right there, false water cobras. Boom. And I'm like, send it to Zach. <laughs> yeah. Zach, guess what I can play with now, man? Uh, so I can't wait to get my hands on some of this yep. stuff. Um, and, I, and I fire back on, you know, hey, here's some <laughs> others that I'm interested in, you know, and, and hoping that we can can do so. I'm, I know it's silly, but I'm super stoked because that's it. I just needed it in writing that, yes, we can have it right here in the shop and, you know, we can uh, work with it. So very, very, oh. very excited on that. Now, the last piece, and here's the big one been working on this um for about about a month and this friday i'm heading nine hours away uh one way to pick up about 180 to 200 animal collection largest acquisition we've ever made um and we're taking a 22 foot enclosed trailer to bring all of the rack systems holy mother i mean it's it's in it when i say an entire collection it's an entire collection buyout um, I, I went a few weeks ago to look at it in person, make sure that, you know, we both kind of agreed on what we wanted to do. Um, but it's, 
I'm not looking forward to the trip. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not looking forward to the loading, mm-hmm. the unloading, the organizing, the you know all that. And uh, we it, we had to completely redo our quarantine room to mm-hmm. make way because all this goes straight into quarantine. You, you know how that is. Yep. Um, well, luckily it all comes with its own caging. Yeah. There you go. Right. Uh, I just had to make space, but um, it's exciting because it's you know normally when you see big collections. Um, parted with it, it's ball pythons right mm-hmm. and while there's a few of those sprinkled in this is mainly gray banded kings oh cool subox um some rosy boas um some different getulas i mean it's just a lot of colubrids in this and I, i'm i'm pretty stoked pretty excited to get it in and, and kind of get it sorted but uh like i said i'm not looking forward to the work mm-hmm. i'm not looking forward to the increased feed bill mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think it's neat. And like, so That's like I said, ass. man, past few weeks, it, it's been a hectic few weeks and a lot of things moving. So I finally had a major update list. Yes. You, know, you did, for, much bigger for than podcast. mine. <laughs> finally, yeah. right? Awesome. So. Well, I have two questions <laughs> yeah. real quick. Well, sure. one question and then one statement's better. Um, did, have you kept Alterna before? Yes, and I used to kill them regularly. <laughs> Okay. Um, <laughs> that's so, what I was going to ask. Uh, Were you, I have my first pair. Um, we took a bunch of corn snakes and, and gave them to a breeder. Uh, well, actually, it was the other, it was the other like 30 from the 50 I sent you. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And this breeder's kind of funny. Uh, the, the herpetoculture community is a very interesting one in that you never give anything away for free. There's always a gift in return. And, mm-hmm. and I've tried explaining to people like we don't we don't need anything, and then like boom, you get offered something, and then it's usually something where you're like, well, I mean, I guess I can take that. Yeah, uh, I kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> one of our our people that we gave we were given the corn, and they were just throwing things out, and then they were like, well, what about a pair of Blair Phase Alterna? And I was like, you know, okay, so I have those. They came to my house. Um, they're in quarantine now, and I I just have always kind of viewed that snake as the snake that I will kill, like you know. But I also have them as like well established adults, and so far they're pounding everything that I get. Like that's just like keeping any other king snake uh, right now. But you know, yeah. I think for me, because looking back, the last time I had any gray bands, we're talking, gosh, it's twenty years mm-hmm. at this point. And, you know, back then there really wasn't a lot of information. You couldn't just just hop and get everything. And I think my mistake back then was pretty much keeping them like a corn snake, keeping them like anything else. And I'm I'm sure my humidity was probably too high, just like Subox. And that's my plan and intention is to keep them like Subox and and go from there. And another hesitation I'd had before was if I'm going to keep any gray bands and breed them, then you got the headache of getting the babies to feed. But I, I keep feeder lizards on hand now. Oh, you know, yeah. For, here at the shop. So I'm like, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> Pick it up. I got everything I need. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, they, they're such a beautiful. They man. are. They, they really are. And, um, you know, I'm I'm willing to let's give it another go. You know, right. Let's try it. Um, so I, I've done okay with Subox. I think that, you know, at this point, this go around. Hopefully I've got a little bit more uh, intelligence sure. on me when it comes to what I'm dealing well, with. Well, and then the other the statement is I can't. I will be honored to give you your first false water cobras, man. Mm, I'm so excited. <laughs> we, so excited. We have so many in the incubator right now. It won't be a problem. 
<laughs> so. I look forward to it, man. Yeah. Those and I mean, and hogs. I mean, yeah. gosh, I, I've been wanting to get hog nose so bad. And now that I've got the green light, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I want to be all over it. So. Awesome. Okay. We ready to jump in with the guest? Let's do it. Okay, cool. So our guest tonight, as um, already introduced, is Chelsea is Daner. Uh, Chelsea is co-owner of Smoldering Serpents. And um, Chelsea's way of keeping is a way that many of us aspire to keep. Um, there's a bunch of, you know, it's a naturalistic approach primarily. Uh, and we're just going to basically, instead of talking about a species per se, which is what we normally do, um, we're going to talk about naturalistic keeping with colubrids, uh, how, what works, what doesn't work, what causes feelings of accomplishment, and then what causes feelings of, oh, God, here we go. And I know that there, you know, all that's wrapped up whenever you're keeping animals. Um, but, um, yeah, so welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no worries. You were on my, when we, when we were putting the show together... Uh, you were on the, my very short list of whenever we get to naturalistic <laughs> keeping, Chelsea will be on. Um, so before we dive into it too far, and I know that you've been on a couple podcasts, so you can give whichever version, the long version, short version, feel free. <laughs> but but how did you end up in this position where you are taking care of a bunch of snakes? Well, so... Um... Anyone who's known me as a kid knows that I was the first one to dive on a garter snake. Um, I grew up in southern Manitoba in Canada, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the garter snake dens up there. I grew up usually within a couple hours of the breeding dens. So springtime came around, and it was just hundreds of garter snakes everywhere. So um, the first one I ever caught, I saw him come up from between my feet. I was sitting on some (laughs) stairs with my sister, and she screamed her head off, and I dove for the snake. (laughs) So after that, I kind of, it never crossed my mind to keep them as pets. Um, My parents would not have appreciated that, but once I grew up and I moved out, um, I still didn't consider it for a good while. I had geckos, I had all kinds of, you know, I was getting into reptiles, but never snakes. And then I was visiting with my family um, a reptile shop and I saw a ball python and I just, I kind of asked some basic questions, kind of dumb questions looking back now, like real kind of even earlier than beginner questions, like really (laughs) dumb questions. And then I went home and I just kind of sat there thinking about it for a while and I thought, yeah, why not? I'm a grown up. (laughs) I can Mm -hmm. have a snake. Um, So I got my first ball python and... um, Oh, it went pretty quickly after that. I yeah. got a Brettles python after that. And then I started getting introduced to more arboreal snakes. Uh, I love my ball python. I, I still love them a lot. But um, yeah, the Brettles python kind of introduced me to a different kind of snake. Mm-hmm. I remember holding him as a tiny little baby. And he the way he wrapped my hand and kind of reached out to me, I was so confident climbing around. And so after that, I jumped straight to uh, colubrids and I got a Japanese rat snake and good choice well yeah it went from there (laughs) (laughs) very very cool so you've you've mentioned you know brettles python ball python japanese Mm -hmm. rat snake so you know fast forward to today and just talk a little bit about like what you have um what you breed what's growing up just kind of give the the listeners an idea of the collect because i think that this is critical for when we then start talking about the keeping because the mm-hmm. fact that the vast majority of these, if not all of them, are being kept naturalistically is very yes. impressive. Yes. So um, 
So the vast majority of what I keep um, are colubrids. Uh, I actually haven't bred anything except colubrids. So all my pythons, my boas have just strictly been pets. Um, so those include things like I have a ball python now. Um, when I moved from Canada to the States, there was just a lot of logistical, legal stuff. So um, I could only bring my Japanese rat with me when I moved. Um, but I still went out and I found another ball python just because I do love them. Um, there's just something about them. Um, I just like having one around. So I have that. I have a common boa. I've kept rosy boas, um, demerals boas. Uh, as far as pythons, it's just been ball pythons and brettles pythons. So the rest of everything is colubrids. A um, lot of rat snakes. A lot of rat snakes. <laughs> um, we have a lot of North American rat snakes. A good number of Asian rat snakes, um, blue beauties, Taiwan beauties, Japanese rats, Russian rats, um, North American stuff I've kind of been moving more towards. I, yeah, yeah I just kind of <laughs> got sucked into the black rats especially, and then I kind of got into some of the, some locality North American rats, and they've just kind of been pulling me ever since. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so um, that's we got some king snakes, uh, some milk snakes, but that's one of the things that we kind of transitioned out of uh, a couple years ago. Um, I really love them, but they um, they really seem to do well in my naturalistic setups. But I just find the rat snakes more rewarding yet to keep. I just I like their personalities. I like the fact that they're climbing around a good bit more. They're um, they don't try to eat me as much as the <laughs> Lampopeltas do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's really just a mix of um, as many colubrids and colubrid types I can get my hands on, the falsies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, usually when I'm trying to give a list of the snakes I keep, I kind of have to mentally go around all my rooms mm-hmm. because it's such a, you know, a couple of these, a couple of those. <laughs> How many rooms are there? Um, well, so there are there are three dedicated reptile rooms. Um, there's two that uh, are the pictures that you're probably thinking of with the cages in because they're completely uh, all available walls are covered with cages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> even the closets, actually, I've built into the closets in one of them. Um, so there's two full rooms with uh, the naturalistic enclosures. There's one room that I call the baby room that has all the hatchlings, the grow outs, um, and the assorted uh, invertebrates and lizards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I also have stacks of cages um, just kind of throughout the house. I have a stack in the living room, I have a stack, you know, in the dining room. So it's kind of just uh, throughout the whole house. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You know, uh, Chelsea, when you mentioned um, that you, you know, got into black rat snakes, you know, obviously, I'm aware. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, where's, where's got those? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll tell you, you know, kind of a funny story about that was prior to Chelsea had already purchased um, one, multiple black rat snakes mm-hmm. from me before I ever saw pictures of the setups. Or if I had, I didn't put two and two together, the name and and whatnot. So I remember the first time I saw, and it was under um, Smoldering Serpents. And I, you know, the name Chelsea, I would have recognized, but Smoldering Serpents, I didn't at that moment. 
and I want to say it was probably a calico is, is what yeah. I think you had posted. And mm-hmm. my first thought was, that's a beautiful calico. Like, <laughs> it kind of looks like my calico. <laughs> I wonder if it, and then I was like, man, look at that setup. That is gorgeous. Wow. And then I saw your name, you know, under, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's my snake. Awesome. It's so pretty. It's so awesome. You know, and I just absolutely fell in love with the caging and with the naturalistic setups that you do. And now, I, you know, I see it regularly on my feed and just absolutely love it. But yeah, that first time it was so funny, just the, the layers that yeah. it was like, oh, that kind of looks like a, oh, I hate that. Made, oh my God, that it. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> just, boom, 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 boom. just kept going and going and going. So nice. uh, really, really neat. Really neat. You know, Chelsea, you, you, so you're, you're primarily colubrids now. You know, you keep yes. a few other things. What made you go in that direction? You know, really where you expanded so heavy into the colubrid side? Yeah, so um, really all the boas and pythons that I've kept – um, they all have a lot of similarities across them. Like there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot of differences between a common boa and a rosy boa, but at the end of the day, they all have certain similarities that I really appreciate, but I also, um, you know, they're all kind of slower moving. They all tend, tend to be towards nocturnal. Um, and I am not nocturnal. <laughs> I go to sleep early and I wake up a little bit later. So, you know, I was just not seeing them out and about as much as I would like. What I love about them is that when I would be up late at night, if I'd go into a room, you know, after the lights had been out for an hour or two, they'd be out. And they were the only ones really out. All the colubrids had gone to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the boas and the pythons would then be out draped across their branches. And it was really cool to see, but it's also just not when I'm around them mm-hmm. much. So um, it's the fact that the colubrids are up and about during the day, um, quicker moving. Um, and, you know, this is one thing that I've seen a lot of people talking about how smart snakes are or not a certain species or whatever. And I don't, I actually think that a lot of the boas and pythons I've kept are really smart in their own ways. Um, my Demerals boa actually, she used to do her little luring with her tail. And it would just cool. amaze me. Yeah, because I, I just, when I'd catch the behavior, and first of all, I think, really, you're trying to lure me in. Um, but after I laugh at her for a bit, I would just kind of think, you know, I don't see that behavior from my colubrids, really. Um, it's, it's just cool seeing the different behaviors. But at the end of the day, the colubrids, um, they're just more active. They're more visual. Um, I just see them using the cages a little bit yep. more. Um, and I like handling them a little bit more, you know, with my, mm-hmm. with my almost seven foot common boa, she's really impressive and really fun to take out, but I just, I enjoy interacting with, you know, a little four or five foot rat snake a lot more personally. Right. Yeah. And so I, you- I like the, I like the variation of colubrids, you know, I just mm-hmm. I like, you can just have things that are so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I get it completely. It's so in short, the bows and pythons are boring. This is a safe place, Chelsea. You can say that on this Very podcast. Very safe, safe space. Yes. You know, the, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't really have a problem even saying that. Honestly, I'm sure some people will take offense to it, but you know, I choose to keep them. I still choose to keep some, but yeah, in the grand scheme of things, as far as interacting with them and watching how they use the enclosure, they they are a lot more boring than a lot of colubrids. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's even remotely possible to call a false water cobra in a large cage boring. There's, Absolutely, there's not. no way that that <laughs> phrase has never been said unless it's sick or in shed, because they will be moving Absolutely. and using, 
every bit of it. And then once they get to know you, and I know you've experienced with the ones that I've you know given yeah, you, they definitely sure. like I don't no PhD here. I don't care if the scientists of the world get pissy. They know their keeper, and they yes. interact with their keeper, <laughs> and they know who brings the rats. Um, mm-hmm. And and the reason why I like the fall season, it gets into what you're talking about with the colubrids is. Uh, I'm actually looking at mine like the parents to the ones I gave you are directly across this room we're recording this in and they will come out of their hide boxes and give me side eye when I'm typing like come on let's go I'm hungry and then they'll come back in and they just keep doing that like about once every 10 minutes and it's there I I know that those animals have no fear of me they definitely have made an association that I am the food monkey and I am the Mm -hmm. thing that brings the rats And I've never, ever had that with any of the boas, pythons, yellow anacondas, all the boids that I've kept. Um, But I also think it's just they have different evolutionary histories. Like colubrids are active pursuit predators and boas Mm -hmm. and pythons rely a little bit more on the ambushing. And it doesn't work if if you're big and lumbering and you're trying to chase down your prey. It's not going to work. A falsy can do it because they have speed on their side. So. Exactly. And well, and this is this is part of this is part of why I like keeping the way that I do, um, because I get to see and figure out some of those differences. Mm-hmm. Um, like for example, my Demerals boa, she is about as much of an ambush predator as I've ever kept. She like she just sits waiting. She likes to um, half bury herself in the mm-hmm. mulch mm-hmm. under the leaves mm-hmm. and let me tell you, she can disappear. Like, I don't know how a snake that big disappears, but she just disappears until you see a shiny eyeball looking at you. Um, But at the same time, what I would start doing is I'd start trying to just lay the prey down on the opposite side of the cage and seeing if she could find it because, you know, the Brettles pythons are actually terrible at this. (laughs) I would go lay their food down and it would take them two hours to find it. My common bow is actually the worst. Sometimes she never finds it. And I think, mm-hmm. oh, no, why did she refuse food? And then I pick it up with tongs, and bam, she it's done. <laughs> so <laughs> she's like, oh, there it is. But the Demerals boa is actually really great at hunting down just by, you know, just, just that's sitting there waiting for her, no movement. And it would take her just a couple seconds um, to realize there's something in her cage, and she would just be zeroing in right on, in on that food. And so seeing these differences between them is just really cool because you're right. The falsies, my God, sometimes there's a little part in my brain that knows it's a really bad idea, but I just like to put one of them on the floor and wiggle food on the other side of the room yeah. and see what happens. It's <laughs> exciting. So I've done it. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've put so them in one end fast. of the classroom and I've like, you know how you skip a rock? I, of course, yeah. do this by myself. I've skipped a rat across the, the, the classroom floor, and they're just like, boom. Like, it hop, hop, and they well, the one uh, will grab it before it hits the ground on the third floor. I mean, it is yeah. it is insane. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. well this, is, this is what's so cool is just seeing the differences even in colubrids. You know, like, I have... I have a lot of colubrids, um, you know, they'll all take off tongs, but I've never had a colubrid when I go to open the door of the female you gave me, Tempest, she's a big, big girl now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she's just like, no, I'm not really going to let you open the door without trying to come out at yeah. you. So I crack the door and I go to give her the food and I'll throw, you know, a chicken at her and she catches it before it hits the ground. Yep. Like I've, even if it's across the cage, she's, it doesn't touch the ground. So it's just wow. amazing to see these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's what you get when you when you have them in these kind of enclosures, and you can actually yeah, exactly. the enclosures are promoting species appropriate behavior, which is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. 
So then, kind of a good segue to naturalistic keeping is, um, obviously, when you were getting into snakes, I'm, I'm assuming that you kind of saw the gamut of keeping. You know, there's the, uh, we call it sterile here at the university, which is mm -hmm. you know, the, the classic envisionment of that is a rack, but it can actually be done yes. in a viv as well. So uh, there's mm -hmm. that. And then there's like all the way up to a small rainforest in my house. Yes. Um, so <laughs> what... What what made you lean more towards small rainforest versus the sterile approach? Well, so my very first ball python, I was lucky enough. Um, I think a lot of people pat themselves on the back for going straight to a certain style of keeping, but I'm just going to say that a lot of snake communities will start you off in a very minimal, sterile setup. That's just how you'll be told to take care of the animal. So I was lucky enough, in my opinion, to find myself on a certain online community that promotes um, more um, complex keeping. So um, I had people who have done this for a long time holding my hand and showing me what products to buy, how to do it, what to look out for, um, was stressed with her because of the ball python, especially a little baby, um, I had a lot of people telling me it was a bad idea, including the breeder I got her from. Um, so it worked out great for her. I put her straight into a four by two animal plastics cage. Um, I decked that thing out <laughs> mm. and she did great in it. Um, so my first three snakes, I, I went straight into larger enclosures. Um, and I made them all from scratch. I've always mm -hmm. loved building stuff myself. So after the animal plastics cage, I just made the next ones from scratch and um, when I met my business partner, Andrew, he already had quite a number of snakes, mostly king snakes, milk snakes, um, and he was using racks. So that was my first experience actually even seeing racks. And he was already wanting to move in a different direction. And I think um, having me around with my construction experience and um, my love of these creative projects, making the cages, making them not only look nice, but more importantly, functional for the snakes, um, so we kind of turned Smoldering Serpents um, in the direction that we both wanted it to go. Uh, but it was quite a process. It was during that process that we were, you know, whittling down our Lampropeltis into the species that we really love, like the Black Milks and the Honduran Milks. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of been a balancing act from there because we do use racks. Um, and I have many, many reasons for using racks. Uh, yeah. A lot of people don't want to hear it. They hear racks and they, they get upset. Yes. But there are actually many reasons that we choose to use racks for hatchlings, um, for quarantines, for some grow outs when we're waiting for larger cages to become available. Um, so yeah, we maintain that balance now. The baby room has the hatchling racks and then you know they either sell and they move out to their new homes or they get upgraded into the bigger cages that you see. And, and I have a, another question. So you mentioned that you're building these cages? Yes. Yeah. All of the cages right now. Um, yeah. Actually, all the cages right now are ones that we've built from scratch. So, so I know there's got to be listeners that are interested in that element. Are, are, are yeah. your cages primarily made of like plywood and and two by four kind of a construction or is it pvc or they are, how do you go about just talk that talk that process out if you don't mind because i'm actually curious yeah, so 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 they're all made um with three quarter inch plywood 
They're all wood. Yep. Um, and I will say that the reason for that is that most of the snakes that I keep um, don't require super high humidity. Okay. So you have the exceptions to that, obviously. Um, the, the common boa, the ball python are higher humidity species. Mm-hmm. So um, I waterproof all of the cages as best I can. But for the cages that I know will house the higher humidity species, I go above and beyond mm-hmm. and I extra, extra waterproof that because they are made of wood. How do you do that, um, actually? Well, so um, there's been a couple different ways. I like to combine um, a really good sealant on the wood with an actual physical barrier. Okay. So, um, you know, I seal up the insides and I've used a couple different products. Drylock is fantastic because I like the texture it's giving me. Um, as well as it's inexpensive and it works really, really well. Um, but I use a variety of products. And then for the, the cages that I know are going to house something like a ball python, where I know that ideally the substrate's going to have a deeper, wetter layer most of the time, if not all the time. Um, I then use either, you know, like poly sheeting. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, I've also used uh, for the species, again, like a ball python, where it's both high humidity and higher temperatures. My house is usually on the cool side, so then I'm actually using half-inch foam sheets, solid foam sheets on the bottom. So that's both waterproofing and insulating the cage as well. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So then how do you get the plywood cut to spec at, I'm assuming you go to like Home Depot, Lowe's, Big Box store, or is that, am I incorrect Um, there? I, I actually got myself the tools that I need. I grew up with a dad who could build (laughs) anything and, and did all the time. So I went actually, and I got, uh, my own tools. Uh, all I have, well, really all that I use on a regular basis is the table saw. And, um, you know, I'll use like a, like a router to cut out shelves. Mm -hmm. Cause again, all the shelves, the shelves that you see in my cages, um, they can disappear a little bit into the, into the, plants and whatnot but they are actually all the same three-quarter inch plywood um i try to go as minimal waste as possible Mm -hmm. with my materials so when i cut out the shape of a cage and i'm cutting out i I make the doors myself as well which are also the same three-quarter inch plywood framing the plexiglass so when i'm cutting all these pieces um i end up with some funny cutoffs sometimes and i just turn them into shelves that's interesting Yeah, so I so I actually got a, a giant truckload of plywood delivered all at once. Oh, <laughs> it took okay. up most of my garage. <laughs> and so it just sits there, and then when Chelsea's like, "We need a stack mm-hmm. in the kitchen," yeah. <laughs> you can just hit <laughs> exactly. the plywood, and boom, it's there. So, how long does it normally take? Like, you you get the idea in your head, and obviously, the the benefit mm-hmm. of doing this yourself is that things can be built to spec. Yeah. Yeah, but but like. On an average, and I don't know if that exists, but like an average stack, how many enclosures is in that? And then how long does it take you from idea to it's built? Not necessarily painted and sealed and everything, but Mm because I can't do anything with tools. Nothing. Like (laughs) the only thing I can do is remove fingers um, and hurt other people. So I don't build anything. Um, That's why we have like Zeus High students. They do all the building and then I basically supervise that's how that works uh, but yeah I'm, I'm just curious about that because this is fascinating to me because i can't do it <laughs> so. yeah so um building the box itself for the cage is extremely fast um it's been worked down to a near science because uh all the stacks are either um three or four cages tall 
because I have okay. eight foot ceilings. So, you know, two foot high cages works for most of what I keep. So that's a really nice number because it also means very minimal waste from, uh, you know, four by eight sheet of plywood. So that's ideal, but obviously I want the extra height um, in a couple stacks. And my downstairs has taller ceilings yet, nine foot ceilings. So then three foot tall cages suddenly mm -hmm. work out really nice in a three cage stack. So building the box is really, really fast. Um, usually when these things happen, the idea gets in my head, I think about it for five minutes, and then I'm ready to start drawing and cutting the cage. Really? So um, yeah, so the, the longer part is obviously I put the box together and then I need to properly waterproof it, which is just a matter of letting things dry properly in between coats. Um, and then after that, I am installing cutting shelves, um, and then sealing those shelves because everywhere, you know, you know, snakes, if they can find a corner yep. to make a mess in, they'll, they'll mm -hmm. figure out, out a way to do it. So I just try to cover everything. I go overboard with the waterproofing and all that jazz. So, um, yeah. And then I do the shelves and then I use spray foam cause I like to put a lip on my shelves so I can put substrate on mm -hmm. the shelf itself. And, uh, after that, then I'm now carving the foam and dry locking the foam for texture and painting it dry brushing it with more paint to make it look rocky <laughs> uh, all these little things add up but yeah just the getting the box of the cage is super fast and then all the details are what's going to take me a couple weeks okay and then when you put in the floor and the the, the ceiling of the middle cage i guess it would be um, yeah. which in the floor of the middle cage would be the ceiling of the bottom cage are, are those routered in or are they screwed in or like like it kind of slides so actually... in or no that's not necessary <laughs> So I actually, I personally tend to do things um, as simple as what works well. Um, and I always say there's probably a better way to do most things mm -hmm. that I do. <laughs> um, but I just tend to think if I can wrap my brain around it and I know how to do it and it's going to work well, I'll do it. So each of those boxes is actually completely separate. Oh. So in between each, you know, in between two cages, two layers of plywood. Gotcha. Um, and I pop a couple screws in to, you know, fasten them together, and there's absolutely no moving that. Um, and, it, you know, it adds extra weight, but at the same time, I know down the road it lets me take them apart yeah. completely no, that's totally uh, while still sense. having an enclosed, yeah, cage. Yeah. Okay. All right. Clint, do you have any questions at this point? Well, I had to step away, as you guys know, so I kind of <laughs> missed a lot of that. I apologize. Um so we've got the the general build of the cage now, right? Yes. Okay, everything's sealed up. And I'm assuming that, do you, and forgive me if I missed this question, do you build the cages knowing what species you're about to put in them, or do you build this is the size and then kind of the species goes where it fits afterwards? Well, there's definitely some of that because I know, you know, when we're talking about building cages that will hopefully last a long time, there is always the possibility of some snakes uh, moving out, some new snakes moving in, rearranging. Um, and there's also the fact that the reason I do keep like this is to observe the snakes doing as much as possible. So I get to know them within these cages but I can only figure these things out once they're already in there. So there's mm -hmm. definitely been some snakes where I've put them in a cage. I thought I set it up the way that they would, you know, get the most out of it. And then I just learned that they just don't behave quite the way that I think they will. So then I'll move them to a different one that's set up a little bit differently. So because most of the snakes that I keep are 
average, you know, kind of mid-sized rat snakes is most of them. Um, I can follow a general template for most of them and it's going to work well. Like for instance, I always pick a side of the cage and I make a big, big shelf and I set that shelf about 16 inches below the ceiling and that's the basking shelf. Because I know that's going to accommodate the light fixtures that I use. Um, I use halogen bulbs for heating in these cages. So I know it's going to give enough distance for the, the light bulb and the cage around the bulb. And then I'll fill up the rest of the space um, with, you know, as much variation in the shelves as possible so they can look nice and different. And, you know, it doesn't just look like a carbon copy with each cage. Um, and that also gives me the option where if one snake just kind of grows a bit bigger than I thought he was going to, and he needs bigger shelves to accommodate bigger hides, I can also have those options to do a little bit of musical chairs down the road. Very cool. Gotcha. Now you're using live plants in this, right? No, I'm actually not. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. I, I was wondering about that cause I'm like any, any of the setups we have, um, with live plants in it, I mean, snakes typically yeah. destroy, you know, the bigger the yes. snake, the more havoc it wreaks. So, yeah. So that's actually a funny thing. I actually got a lot of people assuming that I do bioactive and I have zero bioactive enclosures. Yeah, and I, um, that's a good point. Keep going with that, mm -hmm. but I'm going to follow up. On yeah. That. Yeah. So, um, I actually love all the components of bioactive. I am a plant fanatic. I am an invertebrate fanatic. I keep isopods, I keep roaches, I keep tarantulas, I keep lots of insects. Um, I, I have a lot of plants, but the thought of putting them all together <laughs> in an enclosure, is never mind the number of enclosures I have, and trying to balance the needs of every living thing in there is, um, it's a bit daunting. I know I could do it, but it's also just, uh, the payoff isn't quite there for me in my mind personally. Um, I do use soil substrate and I have leaf litter in all my enclosures. Um, I do see the snakes. They seem to, most of them seem to do really well with that extra, you know, litter on top, getting a more natural substrate for them to dig around in. Now, sometimes I accidentally go a little bit bioactive because um, I am fortunate to live in an area where there's a lot of really nice forest, untouched forest. And so I'll go out and I'll get some leaf litter. I usually just let it sit in a bag in my garage for a while and I assume everything's out, but you know, sometimes mm -hmm. that doesn't work and I find some earwigs in my enclosures. Um, but yeah, nothing is purposely bioactive and all the plants are silk. Yeah, so <laughs> I think it, John Courtney Smith's the, the guy for Arcadia that wrote all the books and he actually mm -hmm. wrote the bioactive book uh, and I was listening to a podcast on the Animals at Home Network. I think Dylan had him mm -hmm. on his show. And I was kind of shocked to hear the, the the kind of, not necessarily the father of bioactivity, but like the guy who did the big push about a decade ago that's mm -hmm. led us to where we are today. You know, even he has said there's there's just scenarios where this isn't probably the best approach. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, bioactivity has almost been weaponized. Like you aren't doing yes. it right unless it's mm -hmm. bioactive. I've had lots of people approach me for false water cobras and they'll say like, oh, I'm going to put him in an eight foot bioactive you know, setup when he's mm -hmm. older. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, do you have 40 pounds of isopods? Because these things, <laughs> when they go to the bathroom, it's like equivalent 
to a German mm-hmm. shepherd. Like, <laughs> you know, there's nothing that is going to reduce that yes. down. And then you're left with just hair everywhere if you actually do reach the bioactivity piece, because I don't care, like, what animal you have, hair is made of keratin, and there aren't that many things that eat hair. So mm-hmm. uh, the naturalistic approach, that's what I I do. I And I, I also love that you said accidental bioactivity. That's awesome. <laughs> I totally have done that, too. Um, I had a, my blue beauty rat snakes when they were in the, like, they were not giants yet. They were at, like, the five-foot mark. I had them in a four-by-two-by-two, by two, and I uh, would just run out, grab leaf litter, and just chuck it straight into the tank. Or, sorry, mm-hmm. the viv. And I noticed that, like, I checked it all the time, and there was no poop. And then one day, I saw the snake go into the bathroom, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to come back and see what's going on. And the springtails from good old West by God in my backyard had just exploded, and they took that pile of poo down to nothing. Um, And that was unintentional. Like, I didn't seed the enclosure or do anything like that. Um, But no, for the record naturalistic keeping bioactivity not necessarily the same thing and um it's okay to do both you heard it here i just wanted yeah you, you kind of led right into one of my tangents so well that, that is that is one of the things that's really dividing the community these mm-hmm. days is you have so much polarization and so many people that will not accept that there are many ways mm-hmm. to successfully and correctly keep these animals and I've actually gotten some negative responses when they assume I have bioactive and I say, no, actually, that's just naturalistic. Um, and I actually get negative responses. And um, I don't usually have the patience to respond yeah. beyond that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just don't feel like I should have to explain to grown adults that there are multiple ways of doing yes. things, uh, especially when it comes to keeping animals in boxes. Um, obviously, they are all in boxes and we're doing yep. our best to take care of them. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, and the little the little um, springtails that you mentioned, those actually pop up pretty frequently in the dirt. Um, and you know what? I try I try to keep a little patch of soil in most of the enclosures damp, especially around the water dish, because I actually know that there probably are springtails in there. I don't purposely keep them alive, but I give them a little, you know some moisture and see well if you know sure. if they survive, they survive. Um, and they absolutely do break down waste. Um, I, you know, I see them cleaning up little bits when I go and I spot clean, um, because you know, even 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 if I did do bioactive enclosures, I I especially for larger snakes, you have to spot clean. You, you still you have you, to absolutely have to. spot clean, right? So, you know, but I I see the the little inverts going in helping a little bit, you know, you spot clean, you leave a little bit smeared on a leaf or whatever, and they go and they get that for you. So it's nice if they're there. I just don't, um, personally, I don't see the benefits of actually balancing an entire bioactive system. What I, what I do is we're in, we're in my field season now and I do this more for convenience. Um, it's not in any way, shape or form meant to be a flex, but I have to have something that can deal with those landmines that the falsies are creating uh and uh, a false water cobra keeper that if i had a mentor with that species it would have been this guy it's kyle wilson and anybody who does falsies knows yes. kyle um but kai i asked kyle like wh- how do you deal with the smell like when all of them go at once i have a <laughs> wife at home and she's not happy like what what do you do um and he had mentioned that he just 
uh, buys like a thousand superworms and just chucks mm-hmm. about twenty to thirty superworms in there. And I started doing that, and 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 that is, you know, it's it's not to create the bioactive substrate. That's so when I'm away and there's poo in there, it's at least something's getting rid of it and, and getting mm-hmm. rid of that bacterial load to get rid of the smell. So it's it's yeah. a it's a very mm-hmm. functional um, relationship. And I've now gone to the point where uh, I do keep a lot of Getula kings, which also are notorious for their crap, um, and they're like four <laughs> feet. My garage where I have all my big snakes is like there's a, a wall of big enclosures for the false water cobras and then the very large racks that hold most of the king snakes. And when they all go to the bathroom and you open the door, if it's choreographed, it's bad. <laughs> I added the superworms, and sure enough, you know, it definitely took the edge off. And now I have like these thriving superworm colonies. So that's just a little trick for big colubers. But I still am in there and my son is in there with me pulling the the the, the feces out uh, because it's yep. you just have to do it that's all there's to yep. it plus if you actually leave this this is a fun fact along this line then we'll move on to another topic with the superworms the false water cobras um when they are gravid they they're now that rodents have gotten expensive they are very expensive to keep so everybody needs to know that because they're eating four rats four medium rats a week for like a four week period of time now, that's the only time I do that. So that is not, like, what I do. So don't think I am doing this. But <laughs> you're feeding the follicles, that whole idea. And uh, and they're just going to the bathroom constantly. And I had the superworms in there. And I missed a pile of poo. And an enclo- it was, they, they, they somehow managed to tuck it just perfectly <laughs> under the hide box that when I would move it, it, that was always in a shadow or something. And I was doing a deep clean about a month ago. And I picked it up. And it looked like something from like a Conan movie. There were rat jaw bones in there and ribs and vertebrae. I was like, ah. And there's like the sea of superworms just going ballistic on it. So, you know, they definitely get the job done. But even then, you know, you gotta gotta get that stuff out of there. All right. So moving back to this, I want to talk a little bit about your lights. Because yes. um obvious is that the primary mechanism of heat? Or do you have yes. other means of heat? No, actually, for okay. for the the enclosures that I built, yes, the halogen bulbs are the only source of heat. So, do you know? Can you talk a little, like? I did a deep, deep, deep dive on halogen bulbs uh, about mm-hmm. two months ago because in the states they got rid of yes. uh, all the the light bulbs at Home Depot and such, and and yes. and I. I don't I forget I know that there's now this thing called an Edison mount which mm-hmm. is the screw mount and you can take the little halogen bulbs that have the two little prongs and put it into an Edison mount are, are you doing something like that or or no I actually am still using halogens okay. um so again this is another reason why I primarily keep um a certain type of colubrid uh but colubrids in general they just don't need as much heat yes that is definitely so correct. um so actually, I should correct myself. Uh, the bulbs are not the only heat source, but they are the only heat source except for the boas and pythons. Gotcha. <laughs> the boas and pythons also have radiant heat panels for that ambient. Um, the house is just not warm enough for a bulb to properly heat the entire large cage. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with it insulated like crazy, you know, my house is usually in the low to mid 70s, and these guys just need it a bit warmer. 
Um, but for all the other colubrids, I honestly usually use either a 15 or uh, 15 or 25 watt bulb, so extremely low. Okay. And um, I can still find those actually, <laughs> the very low wattage bulbs. <laughs> I can still find those. So um, yeah, that's all they have, and I usually aim for the vast majority of my snakes they're usually getting a warm spot in the mid 80s low mid 80s and then you know their cool side is usually staying in the mid 70s and then obviously the lights go off at night so that's their opportunity to cool down completely because obviously with all these bulbs going the rooms do heat up during (laughs) the day um even with even with the ac Mm -hmm. trying to keep it steady it obviously is still warming up so they have that day night temperature cycle as well very cool. So another question I have. Do you see, because I, I see this with, with my animals that are in the vibs with, with the light. I I also, I had the heat panels for the colubrids. Mm-hmm. And I just, I realized that that was like such horrific overkill. Yes. That I just mm-hmm. pulled them all out and I've got a stack of heat panels if i ever decide to go to the dark side and back to pythons <laughs> i'm ready <laughs> but um i went to just using lights and uva to get the mm-hmm. you know the, the the deep muscle uh radiation and i mm-hmm. have noticed it doesn't matter what species it is it creates a dial activity pattern where you know there's there's wake up in the morning there's some form of thermoregulation it can be like legit basking it can be i go under the light then i leave the light then i go back under the light like my kribos do that they, they don't mm-hmm. really bask ever the eastern indigos as well but they're they're in and out of that light for like the first two or three hours and then it zoomies the rest of the day around the, the enclosure <laughs> but then i have like oregon red spotted garter snakes which I somehow was able to convince my wife that they needed to be next to the television, which is now fantastic because we can watch the garter snakes all damn day. And they just bask (laughs) in a giant ball on top of each other directly under the halogen, get warm, go until they're cold again and go back and bask. So am Mm -hmm. I crazy or are you seeing the same kind of thing? I do. I definitely do. Some are much more obvious about those patterns than others. I would say my most consistent snake um, or species that bass is actually my Russian rat snakes. Really? That's um, cool. They are just little heat hogs, especially in the spring, <laughs> um, but really, really consistently throughout the year. And they're ones that I was always told, don't go too warm, don't go too warm. And, I, and I'm never, especially now at this point in my snake keeping experience, I'm not one of those people who here's you know a large portion of the community saying well don't do this and i'm not one of those people who has to immediately challenge it i i believe that people are saying these things for a reason mm-hmm. um so you know it's not like i just went out and you know gave them a 110 degree basking spot um but i did try gradually increasing their bulb strength and seeing you know because because the snakes that i keep that really don't like heat their behavior changes very abruptly when they get too hot the black milk yeah. snakes the second they have too much heat, they're upset. They're pacing, they're rubbing, they're just very antsy. So the Russian rat snakes, I was kind of, you know, doing my little experiments to see because they always seem to go right to the bulb when it would come on in the morning. And so I thought, well, I hope I'm giving them enough heat. Um, 
And in the springtime especially, I found that those Russian rat snakes were wanting like 90, low 90 really? warm spots. Yeah. And they would just sit there and bake themselves in the morning, and then they'd go cool off. Um, but they were really seeking that heat out, especially my females when they're gravid. Um, they're the most consistent with going and sitting right under as close to the bulb as they can get and just basking where they're, you know, growing those eggs. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely some species that are much more obvious with their daily routines as the lights come on. The Brettles pythons were great at that as well. They would just go and sit right under the heat when it would come up for the morning um, and then kind of go about their day. But some don't seem to care at all, and I just really can never <laughs> predict where they're going to be. Um, but, yeah, some, are, some it's pretty cool to see. You know, they wake up in the morning and they just have their little wake-up routine. What what do your falsies do? I'm just curious. Um, so the female tempest, she used to bask a lot when she was younger, and I found as she's gotten older, she does it less. But I still see her up there, especially when she's in shed. She seeks out that heat like crazy, and she doesn't really um, she doesn't really hide even when she's in shed. Yeah. Like she'll have she'll she'll have these little moments where she'll go into her, she has a big humid hide and she'll go in there, um, which she's really never in besides being in shed. But she'll go in there for a bit, but then she'll be out again and you know full zombie snake just yep. sitting right underneath the bulb, um, taking all that in. And the male Tornos, he's a he's much more shy than Tempest, but I still see him sitting under that bulb in the morning. Not not consistently enough that I feel he has a routine, but. He definitely goes and sits under that bulb sometimes and kind of charges up because, you know, once he's yep. been underneath that bulb, he's, like, supercharged. Mm -hmm. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're interesting ones. They seem to – they don't seem to get into a routine as much as my other snakes who do bask. That's kind of what I see. And, but the gravid females, like you were talking about, they mm -hmm. – that's one of the one of the tells before they become gigantic that I'm like, yeah. okay, it took, is that mm -hmm. they just – they do a perfect coil and they're directly underneath mm -hmm. their heat lamps. <laughs> and that's the only time I see that behavior. Um, yeah. So, yeah. All right. Cool. So talking about gravid females, you know, sitting under there, I kind of think that kind of moves us over to the breeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so what does that look like in, in natural vids? I mean, the cooling, the cycling, the pairing, the egg laying, the, the yeah. Other. Okay, so um, I have two wine coolers at this point because I cannot cool most of the snakes that I breed. I can't cool them in their vivs. I just won't, would not be able to get them cold enough. Um, so I have two wine coolers. I have one that takes, um, takes it down to low mid-50s, and then I have another that goes down towards mid-40s for you know the Russian rats that really need to get mm -hmm. really cold for a winter cycle. Um, so anything that needs to be cooled is pulled out from their enclosures and put in their brumation tubs for the winter. Um, I also have a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be cooled, but just needs more of a light cycle. Um, the black milks really don't need mm -hmm. to be cooled, but they do breed much more consistently. And I have really good results just giving them kind of a, um, a food reduction and light reduction for winter. So um, I could do them in their enclosures. Um, I'll just turn off their lights so that they're sitting kind of room temperature and I drastically cut back their food um, until the spring. But most of them are pulled out for the winter and then when I get them back in and they're eating, um, 
I have had some pairs where I'm just not sure how they're going to react to each other, where I will take them out and put them in a breeding tub just temporarily to just watch them interact with each other for the very first time. And once I get the feeling that they're okay with each other, I usually just let them go nuts um, in the female's enclosure usually. Hmm. So when... This is a question I like to ask people. Do you keep them together until you see X number of locks? Or is it more, I'm just leaving the boy with the girl permanently until she is obviously gravid and then he gets the exit? Which school it very is much depends. It very much depends on the pair. Um, for example, my black milks are so peaceful with each other and they actually, they seem to seek each other out Um you know, obviously there's going to be people taking issue no matter how I say this, but it seems like they're enjoying each other's company. They really mm -hmm. seek each other out despite being in huge enclosures and having so many options. Um, you know, it's not just the male sitting on top of the female. It, they go back and forth. Um, they interact with each other in a really interesting way. So for them, as long as they're both, you know, maintaining the peace like that, um, which they do even when it's time to breed, um, I usually keep them together most of the spring until I know that she's for sure gravid. Um, with other snakes, like my bull snakes, uh, he likes to chew on her face <laughs> and just be a general bother <laughs> mm -hmm. to her. So for them, I put them in, I watch them. If there's no action, he's coming right back out. Um, because when there's action, there's immediate action. So I know that if I don't see a lock immediately, or at least an attempt, that it's just not going to happen that time. Um, a lot of the rat snakes I just find are really peaceful with each other. So I'll just put the pairs together in the female's cage and I'll just kind of let them coexist for, you know, a couple days at a time, take them out, feed them, let them digest back together. Makes sense. Do you set up any type of nest boxes or anything mm -hmm. like that? Or Okay, so yeah, I try. Yeah, yeah, I try to have as many cages set up with permanent human hides, anyways, because mm. you know, with these larger enclosures, it definitely can be harder to maintain any kind of humidity consistently in the whole enclosure. And for a lot of the species I keep, they don't need it. Um, and my house is, you know, naturally on the drier side, so I try to give all of them a humid hide, anyways. But especially for the females that are going to lay, they all get at least one nice big nest box stuck in there. Do you ever have them say, screw it, I'm going to lay my eggs on top <laughs> of this plant? I actually <laughs> or... haven't. Funny so enough, that's interesting. When, when we, yeah, when we were Ooh. still breeding in racks, which we did for a year or two or three, um, when we did breed in racks, I actually had that um, a couple times. And now in these enclosures, I haven't actually had them drop eggs anywhere besides the humid hide that I give them. I'm sure it'll happen yeah. one day, but for, for now, it hasn't yet. <laughs> That's really interesting. Very cool. Um, so after, and forgive me if, you know, we need to, if I'm jumping ahead, but so, you know, we've got the eggs laid and they're mm -hmm. laying in the hides that you already provide. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And, and it's, I do find it very interesting too, that you never have them lay anywhere weird because yeah. I know I do. <laughs> Right? So yeah. obviously you're yeah. certainly setting things better, <laughs> yeah, setting them up better than I am. Um, but you're, you know, so once you have babies, are you putting those in rack systems? Cause I know you mentioned that you do use racks on some things or. Yes. Yeah. Right? All hashlings go into the hashling racks. Um, yeah. So I usually do room temperature incubation for everything I can a little bit on the cooler side. Um, I have found that they get 
you know, a little bit more robust babies, a little bit bigger babies. It can take a really long time. The, the, the incubation times that I've gotten in the past have made a couple very well-seasoned people who have been keeping snakes longer than I've been alive just about swallow their tongue <laughs> or their thing. They're like, okay, I would have been panicking by then. And I, maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I'm always just like, well, I mean, if the eggs still look good and they're not ready to come out, I guess they're not ready to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they usually come out uh, on the bigger side, uh, more robust side. And um, for most of the rat snakes that I'm breeding, they come out pretty small so i'm using six quart tubs to establish them um yeah you know i'm the kind of person that if i actually thought it would work better to have babies in you know their little mini naturalistic setups mm-hmm. i would do it i like really just tempt me to make a whole wall of tiny little mini cages <laughs> and i'll do it um, <laughs> it's just that over the years of breeding and you know uh Raising up snakes, getting babies established is a steep learning curve sometimes, especially when you're going across a wide variety of species. And I think a lot of people who haven't bred snakes, you know, say things like, well, you know, why would it make sense that they do better in these tiny little racks? And, you know, but the thing about raising snakes, especially getting babies established is what works doesn't always make sense logically. (laughs) I can tell you that there's no baby snakes out in the wild eating boiled pinkies. And yet that's my number one trick for getting babies to eat. So, you know, for me, when I hatch a baby, my goal is to monitor that baby, make sure they're healthy to get them established and eating and then to get them out the door once they're very well established to their home, you know, I vet my homes. Um, I ask people questions. I want to make sure they're going to good places. So my goal is just to get them established, not as quick as possible, but in a timely matter. It's no fun to watch a baby snake refuse food no. for three, four months um, and just hope they're going to come around. So when I can set them up in these simple setups, I can monitor them. I can clean them very easily. Um I can make sure that they are focusing on their food. They're not just getting lost in a back corner of a big cage and not, you know, having the confidence to come out and get their food. Um, It just minimizes all these variables and lets me just zero in on getting them established, making sure they're healthy and robust, and then getting them out the door to their home, who's then going to take them to the next step of a more complex setup um, and a more enriching life. Hmm. Very cool. Makes sense. Very, very cool. Have you, have you tried to keep the yeah, babies actually, in a yeah, semi-naturalistic so yeah. way. Yeah, so most of the snakes, my personal snakes that I keep, my breeding adults and my pets and whatever, um, most of them were started in uh, more complex, larger setups. And for some of them it worked, and for some of them it didn't, and just ended in a kind of a frustrating <laughs> cycle of trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, I honestly think my biggest learning curve... Uh, my biggest humbling experience was when I tried yellowtail cribos. <laughs> and I was not prepared. I initially wanted blacktails, and um, this person contacted me and just so happened to have really beautiful yellowtails. And it, it was a bad experience all around. The breeder um, basically sent me unestablished yellowtails. Um, but really, they, they actually, the male passed and the female, once I got her established, I, the experience had just soured them so much for me that I found her a new home once I knew she was okay. Um, 
But the whole experience with me starting them in a larger enclosure, because I knew they were known to be active, mm-hmm. you know, intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, really rewarding snakes. And I just got excited about that. And so I tried to start them in um, not even a big viv. It was still a rack, but it, they were big, big tubs for the babies. And I filled it up with all, you know, uh, cork bark that would fit in there. I stuffed some plants in there. I tried to make it as, you know, filled up as possible. And <laughs> I just could not get these things to eat. And I was trying everything the breeder was telling me. I was going doing fish, birds, frog legs, everything that they were suggesting to do. And the one thing that finally broke their refusals was me gradually stepping them down in tub size until all of a sudden mm-hmm. I had these snakes in these little six-quart tubs that seemed way too small. And I didn't like the way it looked, and yet they started eating. So that to me was a kind of a humbling experience of you know what makes sense and what sounds right to us isn't really always what works best yeah you know like i said if i if if i thought it was going to work as good even having you know raising hatchlings in these nice pretty little vivs i would do it because i think it would just you know be really cool but it just doesn't work as well in my experience Uh, no i think you're absolutely right i mean there's a lot of times where uh, to your point, animals putting babies in smaller enclosures seems to kick them in gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every now and then you'll have a species. For example, mandarin rat snakes. Uh, for me, I find that they actually do a little better in what I'd call a naturalistic setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not really, but it's um, it's still in a uh, rack system, but where many of the babies for their first few meals, I keep them on paper towels Mm -hmm. and just, it just seems easier for them to find the meal Mm -hmm. and just kind of works better. But with mandarins, no go. They Mm -hmm. want substrate. They want, I need to put some cork bark in there for them Mm -hmm. to hide under. It's that particular species just likes it. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think uh, it's weird how so many of them, when we try to get fancy, they're like, no, 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 no. Well, and I should clarify too, when, you know, when I talk about my six quart racks for the, for most of the babies, I mean, there's some like, you know, the baby bull snakes that come out absolutely enormous that they go straight into my 15 quarts. Um, but, um, you know, for my baby racks, I do use substrate for, for all of them right out of the egg, but I also, I recognize the, um, potential issues that do come with that, you know, like it is harder for them to find the food. The food can sometimes get buried. Um, monitoring their waste is obviously not as easy on pa- than on paper towels. So even that choice to use loose substrate with hatchlings, even that has benefits and it also has you know frustrations and added challenges to it. Um, so you know it's there are many many choices to be made when you're trying to establish and raise babies. But um, I think I've zeroed in on at least something that works well for me. Yeah. No, I, I've done, um, like, I've put sticks and, and things for them to mm-hmm. kind of climb on, especially when I was doing pantherophis. So when we have mm-hmm. corns and any kind of rat snake, yeah, they do seem, I, it seems like you see them perched up on there. And I figure if they're mm-hmm. willfully perching up off the bottom of the substrate a little bit, then, okay, we'll do this. But it's not like a jungle in there. I'm talking a little bit of mulch, paper towel, substrate toilet paper roll and some sticks like so there's a little bit of complexity in there but it's not a full-blown naturalistic setup 
It's exactly it, you know, and if there's, you know, a lot of my babies tend to stay a little bit longer with me than some Mm -hmm. breeders. Um, Like, for instance, right now we're coming into obviously the 2023 season and I still have baby calicos. I still have, um, you know, baby white sided that I honestly just am not posting as available because I do Mm -hmm. like hanging on to some for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's some like the black milks uh, or the Gulf hammock rat snakes where they just weren't ready before winter hit and it got too cold for shipping. Um, so I get to see them grow up and they're obviously spending longer in these hatchling racks. So when I know that that's going to happen, you know, for the, for the milk snakes, they're so super easy. They really just want something to burrow in. You know, you can, you can, you can give them sticks to climb on and you'll catch them draping over there sometimes, but especially the black milks, they just really want to just dig tunnels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're super easy, but with the rat snakes, you know, I have some 15 quart tubs that have branches hot glued across the back of the tub so that they can perch up there and get a little bit of you know exercise in there while they're waiting to be shipped out very cool so i i want to let's move on to just what does a day in your life look like maintaining this many naturalistic enclosures with this many snakes like is it do you ever Obviously, it has to be rewarding or you wouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair yes. statement? <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Yes. So there's definitely more positives than negatives. But at the same time, I uh, at my house, I think I'm like a I was a 50 50 split between very large racks. I'm talking mm-hmm. like Frieder Breeder 90 whatever tubs with the windows. That's my favorite rack tub. Yeah. Um, and for a king snake, you can totally deck that out. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm even trying to get lights in there and we'll talk about that at a later point in time. Um, And then I also have the vivs and I noticed that like, it is definitely true. I spend more time primping up the vivs than I do the rack tubs. And there are times when I sit there and think like, am I, is there some kind of psychosomatic thing here? Like, do I think the vivs need more time because they're fancy? Oh yeah. I've thought about that a lot, but just kind of talk a little bit about what your routine looks like, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, well, I wake up and pretty much the first thing I do the second I'm out of bed is I go and make my rounds, look at everybody. And a lot of them are not even awake yet, but I still go look. <laughs> um, I go and I uh, take a whiff and I can tell which cages are going to need extra cleaning that day. Um, <laughs> especially if it's the falsies or the bulls, then uh, the whole room smells um so i just do a quick little round um i would say i clean water dishes you know i used to have a day that i would do like set days of the week that i would do it nowadays i kind of just do it as i see it needs to be done um Mm -hmm. it just feels like less of this overwhelming chore that i know is looming and coming up and that it's going to take half the day so you know i just check everyone's water dish um you know babies like to poop in their water dishes so for them it's a lot more work to keep them clean but that has nothing to do with them being in a rack that's just i don't know little snakes seem to find their water dishes uh as toilets a lot easier Mm -hmm. um but yeah i i do spot cleaning um the funny thing is with racks versus vivs i find that racks are like when a when any sizable snake goes to the bathroom in a rack yes um you kind of really want to clean that the second you see it. Like it's just going to get, it's going to sit there and be gross. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also find that snakes in racks tend to go through their waste 
uh, more. Um, even when it's a tub that's pretty big for the size of the snake, I just seem to find that they've tracked through it more often. And in a Viv, almost all my snakes have a certain corner that they go in. And, you know, then you have, you know, snakes like Tempest, the female falsi, who likes to just smear across the front of the plexiglass mm -hmm. occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, she has her corner that she goes in. Um, yeah, I find that I'm kind of fluffing up the vivs more because there is more to fix and you know a snake will knock a branch here and and knock off a plant off a shelf over there and it's, there's just more to kind of take care of um but yeah i find that my cleaning is a little bit easier in the vivs just because you know ideally you would be spot cleaning the second you see a mess but you know life happens that's not always how it works and I just find in the vivs, there's so much more airflow Yes. that, you know, if I miss a little pile here in the corner, it dries out so fast that, you know, it's not just sitting there as a gross, wet, smelly pile, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, until I get to it. So, you know, I try to clean as soon as I see it, but I, f I feel like vivs are just a little more forgiving of how my life actually goes. <laughs> yeah. So th this is an interesting observation we made. And, and this is one of my former grad students who also happens to now, well, she was working here when she was getting her master's degree, but she is our animal care um, coordinator. Her name's Kinsey Guthrie. For her thesis, I wanted to tackle head on preference with the snake. Like it, the whole argument of rack versus viv, I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't I didn't want any emotional human telling me it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to set up a system where the snakes could tell me what they preferred. And then mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's your classic evidence-based husbandry approach. Um, yep. And we set up enclosures where we, we got the great big six-foot um, animal plastics vivariums. And we had them build us special dividers that went right down the middle. So it ended up being, I think, a three foot long, two foot deep. And it wasn't quite two feet tall. I think that these things were like 18 inches tall, but two separate vivs. Mm -hmm. And then this divider had a big, right in the middle of it, open hole cut in it. And the snakes could literally choose which side. And on the one side, we did newspaper, hide box, water bowl. Uh, and a stick that was the enrichment and then on the other side we did mulch um uh, a vertical hide so the hides you kind of mount on the the top mm -hmm. of the viv we did a bunch of grape wood branches um and then a, uh, and then a water bowl and and like hides water bowls and sticks were standardized so it wasn't like mm -hmm. there's a bigger hide here and that's why because when you do science you got to control for all yep. those things and what was extremely interesting is we had two of these vivaria and we ran four examples, four different individuals, four false water cobras, four corn snakes. Um, and then we did four ball pythons just to piss everybody off. <laughs> <laughs> and what we found, it didn't matter what the species was. It was always a three to one split. Three of them would sit over on the enriched side and they would spend almost all their time in the enriched side. Um, and there was always one, though. There was always one individual <laughs> who's like, newspaper's my friend. It had the ability to go to where all the enrichment was, and it chose to stay. And it was it was bizarre. Like, there was one false water cobra that did that. There was one corn snake that did that. There was one ball python that did that. 
But what was really interesting is, and it seems like poop is an underlying theme tonight. Um, <laughs> whatever side they lived on, the snakes would go to the other side to defecate. So there was, and, and when they would go to the other side, they would seek out water bowls and crap in water bowls. And we all know the second you put a clean water bowl in, that's like a running joke mm -hmm. in herpetoculture is yeah. they're going to crap there. So, mm -hmm. you know, here we have this experiment and the snakes were, they lived in these setups for three months and poor uh, Guthrie had to look at, like, we had video cameras on them and she watched three months of video for 12 snakes, which was kind of crazy and made an ethogram and the whole thing. But um, I started thinking about this whole crapping in water bowls and, having a, a toilet area, basically, a latrine. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and when you look into the literature with wild snakes, they do that too. There are definitely papers where it's been found. And why poop in the water bowl? If you poop in the water bowl, your scent is going to go into the creek or the, the pond or whatever and be washed away so the coyote doesn't know you live there. So it, it, it makes, you know, you see that behavior with, with them in the viv. Unfortunately, when they're in the rack, mm -hmm. Some of my king snakes will absolutely crap in the same corner every single time. And they seek mm -hmm. their water bowl out like no other. And then it's, uh, mm -hmm. you are correct. It is mm -hmm. the most rancid, disgusting, <laughs> that is getting clean that day. Like, yes. Moment. But it, it's kind of absolutely. interesting how um, they do do that. But uh, but in the vivaria, you can miss a poo because they do dry out. Yeah. That's a very valid yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually have had, um, you know, most people who have keep larger groups of snakes are very familiar with forward flies. Yes. And, uh, all the There's some flying up my nose pests. right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I've experienced the booms of forward flies mm -hmm. occasionally, and um, I can always trace it back to the racks. Um, mm -hmm. because the racks are holding more moisture in the substrate. The substrate's not drying out. Whereas in the vivs, um, you know, the snakes have their humid hides, but the rest of the enclosure is very dry usually. Um, so I can always trace these fly booms back to the racks, despite me cleaning, you know, when I see waste in a rack, you know, in a rack I clean, um, I'm just pulling this waste out as soon as I see it, and I feel like I'm keeping it clean, and yet the moisture, and I feel like the lack of airflow, um, yeah, I can always trace it back to the racks. So, you know, even though I might miss waste in a viv, the fact that it's drying out so fast, and the flies are not being attracted to that in the same way, um, again, I just feel like it's a, the, the vivs are a little bit more forgiving of real life and the fact mm -hmm. that we're not perfect in how we, mm -hmm. you know, we clean and keep on top of things. Um, yeah, that's just something I noticed. I'm, de I'm dealing with another forward fly boom right now. And again, I can trace it right back to the, the hatchling racks, um, despite them being clean, but I also just, you know, gave them all fresh brand new bedding that comes out of the bag a little bit wet and yep. all the flies are like, Oh, Great. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Right. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yeah. So then is there any aspect of this type of keeping that you're 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 trying to like you're challenge yourself to improve on or or is there a part of it that is keeps it real and interesting and you're like I haven't quite mastered this yet um cuz I certainly have that with the, the naturalistic vivs that my hizzle. 
Yeah, well, the thing is, the second you have a larger box that you're keeping a snake in, you have much more space and many more options of what to do exactly in there. Um, and like when you, you know, what you're saying with your experiment there with, you know, the three preferring the enriched side and the one always preferring is that's exactly it is each individual snake has its own preferences. And like I said, what you think they should want is not always what they want. It doesn't always make sense. Um, so, you know, I'll have some rat snakes that really don't seem to want to leave the ground mm -hmm. despite, you know, all the other individuals of that species being basically never touching the ground. I'll have one that just doesn't want to seem to climb, doesn't want to perch. So I'll then kind of, you know, deck out the floor of that enclosure, give more hides on the floor, give more leaf litter and more plant cover so that the snake feels, you know, you know, like there's much more to do, many more options where they're comfortable, where they want to be to begin with. Um, I would say in general, the one part that I, that takes a good bit of planning um, and creativity, but I do find the most fun to challenge myself with is the ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, because you see, you know, when I, when I look at my average two and a half, three foot cage, um, I put shelves all the way up the walls um, besides the basking side, which obviously has the one single basking shelf and then the bulb is taking up space. The whole rest of the Viv is open floor to ceiling. And I try to fill that space, but I inevitably end up with a good amount of empty space um, kind of towards the front of the Viv and up towards the ceiling. And obviously you need some of that space to be able to work in there yep. and you know remove the snake and clean properly. But there's also a lot of wasted potential when you look at the just the the volume of the cage. And so I have one Viv that I really kind of lost myself in some experiments <laughs> to how to fill it. Um, and it's actually Luthi and my female, my adult female calico black rat, because she's so outgoing and so rewarding. You give something to her and you know she's going to check it out at the very least and probably use it. And so I, I tried to make my own ceiling hides. And I, obviously you can just go and buy you know your typical reptile basics hide and then get the mounts to just slide it in which is a great option but um i like to do things the hard way sometimes <laughs> and figure out how to do it myself and so i ended up buying these little white um really it was aesthetics for me um and i knew that <laughs> um but my ceilings are painted white to try to reflect a little mm -hmm. bit brighter. My, my backgrounds and my sides, um, sometimes I do 3D backgrounds, sometimes I just paint the wood. Um, but they're all dark for the most part. But the ceilings I do white, glossy white, to give a nice reflection of the light. And so I didn't want a black plastic hide mounted on the ceiling when I put so much work into making the rest of the cage look nice. So I ended up getting these white plastic, they're just plant pot trays. Mm -hmm. They're about uh, an inch tall, maybe a little bit more. And I ended up rigging it with little ropes so that it basically turned into a plastic hammock <laughs> on the ceiling of the of the cage. And I realized, you know, as it was progressing, I was just going way too far into this project for what it was going to be. Um, but I got it up eventually, and I put the snake back in the cage, and I thought, well, that was dumb. I mean, that was way more effort than it was worth. And that snake is in that hammock all the damn time. She even goes up there when she's gravid. She'll wedge her fat belly up in there, and she'll just sit there. And she's just happy as a clam yeah. up there. Um, I also experimented with, um, like, doing some kind of vines, so to speak, with some rope, you know, draping it in her cage again because she's just so much fun to play with. 
uh, in her cage, I would drape some different lengths of rope and stuff. And I see her going from rope to rope to rope, just kind of, you know, just floating across the middle of that cage that was unusable, just kind of floating across the ropes there. She'll even eat hanging off of them sometimes. Nice. So, yeah, it's a lot of work to fill each cage that much with stuff, but that's definitely the area that if I had all the time and motivation in the world, I'd be focusing on that. Yeah. My thing was I was hell-bent on getting one live plant to live in a cage with snakes. I went in one. I went one Viv that had a live plant. And Bear and I, uh, Baron's Racers, they're kind of long. They, they have this time in their life, especially the males, because the males don't get as big as the girls, where they're kind of long and skinny, but they're also very muscular, so they're pretty damn strong. Mm-hmm. But when they're around four feet, they're not quite big enough to utterly demolish a plant. <laughs> and I, I I achieved it. I, I, uh, I was so proud of it that I spent a day trying to get pictures. It's really hard to get pictures, by the way, of an entire Viv yes. and show it yes. off and it not look ridiculous. But they're mm-hmm. they're in the book. So whenever the book inevitably comes out sometime this decade, you all can see it. <laughs> um, but uh, but I was like, check, it's working. And it was really, really badass because Baron, it was my blue Baron eye, the only one that I made that mm-hmm. was blue. And and she was amongst all the leaves, and it was like really, really picturesque. And it was working for like six months, and I went away to a conference over the winter, and my heater kicked on, and it didn't shut off, and it just blew hot, dry air in there and mm. nuked that pothos. That was the plant, mm-hmm. by the way. Like I, 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 was, I was going to yeah, ask. My standard was, was very and, low. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it, And what I do with pothos is I have them <laughs> – I feel horrible for them. Um, I have about 20 of these things that they're on a rotation. So I'll put one a pothos in. And what I literally do is I, I buy like the $7 pothos at Lowe's. Just nothing fancy <laughs> mm-hmm. at all. And then I, I get the um, water, the clear plastic water bowls for the plants. But it's way mm-hmm. too big for this particular plant. I think I get like the 10-inch diameter one. And pothos can, I mean, Fish keepers put pothos in aquariums so that you can super saturate the soil. Now was the thing that was killing it all the time is that it would be fine. And then I would like not water it right. And then the snakes beating the hell out of it and then it dies. So I just started to literally keep two inches of water in that water basin all the time. So the pothos always had water and it seemed like I could reach an equilibrium with some of the snakes where there was enough growth that the snake might kill this part of the plant, but the other part of the plant's growing. And it was like this cycle, but the snake's growing. And then it inevitably reaches the tipping point where the snake is now too big. And then the, the plant dies, but it did, it did ultimately, you know, work, but that was my big challenge to myself was I'm going to get one plant. And I, I did it. And that pothos is still alive. I was able to bring it back from the verge of death, but those things, I mean, they, they're troopers. That's yeah. uh, I agree. I mean, that's like the one there's two plants that i've seen survive you know when it comes mm-hmm. to being in a uh, a snake's enclosure and it, it's pothos and coincidentally snake plant. yes i was gonna say it's uh, gotta be snake plant. Very, yeah yeah mm-hmm. it seems to do very well you know as, as far as as long as the snake's not too big you, yep. you get too big of a snake and it's just going to crush it but yeah the pothos i mean they take a beating and just keep on growing yeah so. i just pull one out and it looks like like you look at it and you think this thing's gonna be dead within the next 48 hours and nope it goes back in the window, and then I rotate in one of the nice, lush, pretty ones. And then two <laughs> months later, it looks like it's going to die. And that one that was in there has recuperated, and it's just 
that's the system. That's actually what I teach my students in the herpetoculture classes. Um, you got to kind of think outside the box here and don't make the plants permanent because you have to be acceptance is key. And they're, if you have an active snake, you know, if you have a some ambush species, sure, you could probably get a, a, a plant in there. But mm-hmm. that being said, the ambush species is probably going to be heavy bodied. And the one time it wants to go on adventure time, it's going to kill everything in there. <laughs> so, right. right. Anyway. Very, very cool. So I guess we're we're on to our our last question. And, and this is Matt's question. He gets to claim this one. He started asking it. And um, good luck to you, Matt, wherever you are, by the way. Um, uh, <laughs> we, we've been asking people to kind of wrap the show up with, wh- where do you see herpetoculture in five to ten years? Um, I went on Project Herpetoculture and, and did an episode for them, and I talked about how for some people, this is a hobby. For other people, this is more of a discipline. Um, kind of talk about where it falls for you on that spectrum. And then do we have good trends in herpetoculture right now? Is it all gloom and doom? Is it rainbows and sunshine? What's your perspective going forward? Yeah, so um, I, I really pulled back from the social media part of um, the reptile keeping community. Um, everybody who's in it knows uh, how it can be sometimes, oh, and yeah. and I find that that's getting a bit worse. Just in my you know relatively short experience in the grand scheme of things, I just seem to see, um, and I kind of have a hard time myself fitting in to different groups because it is so polarized, and I actually don't align with many of them entirely. Um, and they're usually not forgiving of that. No, you know, I, I initially, I initially started, um, gaining traction, you know, with people, um, following my page and such. I initially gained traction in the more advanced side of things. Um, and I started to find that as I gained experience as a breeder and I figured out things that worked and didn't work, uh, didn't work. And I found things, you know, certain things just don't matter. And there's a lot of people that don't like to hear that, um, (laughs) right now is they don't like to hear that some things just don't matter in its personal preference. You know, I have snakes that are in beautiful, big vivs right now that I guarantee that snake is not really getting anything out of that viv that they couldn't get out of a larger size rack. They're just, and and the rat snakes, right? The where other individuals of the same species are active, they're utilizing the whole enclosure the way I hope, and the way I enjoy seeing. But then there's individuals that uh, I just don't think it matters what you keep them in, as long as their needs are their basic needs are being met. They're not they're not active individuals that they don't interact with their environment in the way you would expect. So, you know, there's a lot of things where I've come to the realization that we may put a lot of weight on you know the choices we make but as far as the animal's well-being it's just not something worth getting that upset about and demanding that people you know do things a certain way and you know i've had i've had this weird little balancing act of really falling more towards the older keepers in a lot of ways Um, and it's not really popular for someone my age to be aligning with the older keepers. Um, but I just find that, you know, when things go, 
when things go sideways and I can't figure out what's wrong, they're the people who know how to troubleshoot things. They're the people who have been doing this all this time. They know how to do the basics before trying for something complicated. And which is why when I personally sell snakes now, if someone is going to bother asking me, um, as the breeder, I will encourage them to start with a small, simple setup, like get the snake eating, get the snake settled and comfortable, and then move on to more complex things, but get the basics first. So I find myself aligning more with these, you know, older keepers who kind of established keeping snakes. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and on the other side, I find that you know, I get frustrated when some of these older keepers are discouraging people from trying new things, from trying to be better and pushing ourselves. You know, they say, well, you know, it's worked for me for 30 years and my snakes all eat and produce babies. So there's nothing more to do, which I don't agree with that either. There's so many ways that we can improve. Um, but, you know, I actually I try to take the time to talk to people like that and figure out why they feel that way, because there's so much animosity from both sides of things that it's understandable that they are also both sides are also defensive you know automatically they're defensive and they just kind of come off stronger than they mean to or even that they really feel you know like i had a conversation with one of these you know really prominent old time keepers once where he was kind of poking fun at you know the younger kids these days making things so complex and all the snake needs is a box and water and food and you know like i just I, I just asked, you know, if, you, if someone has a dog, you know, any other pet, if someone has a dog, we know they don't need a lot of things, but would you be making fun of a dog owner, you know, if they take that extra effort to take their dogs on, you know, more walks and, and get them an extra nice bed to sleep on or, you know, better than just bottom of the barrel food, you know, we do better for our animals because we want them sure. to be healthy and we want them to have good lives. So you know, me and this and this breeder had a great conversation after that. And it was just nice to bridge what felt like such a big divide in the community between people like me, like, you know, when you look at the pictures of my stuff on social media, it probably looks like I'm more on the advanced side, even than I actually am, because I don't post pictures of my racks, I'm not hiding them. And I have so many reasons for using them. And I'm happy to talk about it with anyone. But I don't post that side because um, that's not the side I actually, you know, enjoy showing off. It's just kind of, that's kind of like the, you know, that's the work side of things, establishing the hatchlings and all that. And um, so it probably looks like I'm leaning more towards one side than I actually am when in reality, it's just, I'm just having a hard time fitting into any larger group. So as far as the future of everything, I just... For me personally, it still feels very divided and unnecessarily hostile between a lot of keepers. You know, I just, there's the people who appreciate and love snakes, such a small group to begin with. I yes. just can't quite believe sometimes the amount of fighting amongst ourselves. Right. You, you, yeah. That was just... one of the most articulate <laughs> responses to that question ever. And I, I, I I feel like you actually were in my brain talking because that's 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 I, I agree with everything you said 100 percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think keyboards make people warriors, man. Like yes, when, when you sure. are in your safe hidey hole of your home mm -hmm. or your you know, on your phone or whatever, and you're not 
in the immediate mm-hmm. presence of the human you are communicating with, yeah, it makes you much. It, it just has a tendency, and I'm guilty of this. I'll fully admit to it mm-hmm. on occasion. It, your, your hockles get up, and you're you're on it. Um, yeah, I I brought this up in a former episode, but I really feel like one of the things that we need to get back to is the face to face interaction. Yes. Uh, I don't think COVID did anybody any favors. We were all isolated. We were literally <laughs> mandated to be isolated. And I don't want to get down that political line. So, but, mm-hmm. but you know, just talking about the history of it. And now we've kind of come out of it and you know, people are working from home now all the time. Um, there's more of a push for electronic communication and, and like this is the future. But there's got to be something said to all those herb societies out there. Because I guarantee you when a herb society gets together... That full spectrum of keeperdom is probably in that yeah. room, and everybody's just sharing a moment with the speaker, or, or you know, BSing before the meeting starts, and it yep. breaks those barriers down. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. Well, and that that that's really you know, um, that's what I find that when you get face to face with someone, I don't let people come into my house very often. Um, I. I have in the past, you know, years ago, I have had minor mite outbreaks. And let me tell you that <laughs> the learning curve when you get something <laughs> contagious flying through your collection is, yeah. So I, I really keep things under lock and key uh, if it's not someone I personally know and is otherwise a friend. But, you know, even just going out and having people meet me on my driveway to pick up a snake. Yep. I mean, getting that. to see them face to face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, getting meet to meet face to face is just... All of the, you know, most people I meet are, are nice people anyways, but, you know, I've even come, you know, to chat with a couple of people who I know are quite aggressive online and I don't agree with some things I do and I don't agree with, you know, the way they do some things. But when you're just face to face and you're talking, it's so easy to just share a laugh about the fact that snakes like to shit in their water bowls. Yep. You know, right. like at, right. at the end of the day, we all just, we love these animals and we have different ways of doing things and our, we have our reasons for doing things differently, but yeah, it, the internet definitely makes it much easier to focus on our differences. Yeah, Andre, and everybody has to have an opinion. That's that's what kills me too. Yes, it's, it's one. It, sometimes the best thing to say is just nothing. Yes. you know, <laughs> if you're not an expert, yep. just shut up. Yes. you know, just just it doesn't matter what you're thinking. Just just yes. stay out of the conversation. You know, yes. it's and we see that all the time, whether it's a debatable topic or you know, and, and this is not even necessarily about people in the hobby arguing over it, but whenever you see someone post a picture of a snake and they say, what is this? Mm-hmm. And you've got 50 people that don't know snakes <laughs> telling them what it is, and it drives you crazy. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, by the same token, we see that if... Don't don't put down racks if you've never used them. Yep. Don't put down that, you know, vivs aren't beneficial if you've yep. never used them. Yep. You, you don't have both sides of the the argument to be yep. able to really weigh your opinion yeah yep. you, you know that that's what just kills me about the the need to speak yeah. you know it's almost like that's yeah. what social media has given mm-hmm. us is this need to put our piece out there when our piece is irrelevant sometimes yeah. and it just takes well, a, a grown-up to know that you yeah know? <laughs> i i agree and i and i and i also feel like you know i've i've actually gotten sometimes where someone will ask me a specific question or my feelings on a certain topic. And I will say, I don't, I don't have strong feelings on that. Or, or I, I personally feel like it doesn't matter too much either way. And I get negative reactions to that. And it's almost like, it's almost like it's viewed as like a cop out to not have a strong opinion on something at all times. Um, you know, I, I briefly started up a YouTube channel 
um, just to, you know, throw out some videos of my snakes. And, and I personally just find the work of putting out the quality of videos that I want to be far too much. And so I, I do have some more planned to make, but um, it's a lot of work. But I also just found myself struggling on what's actually worth putting a video out there on, you know, what's just me kind of, you know, just talking for the sake of talking, which I don't like doing at all. And what's actually putting valuable information and insight out there. So yeah, I do find that there's a lot of just talking and arguing for the sake of making noise. Yep. And it's just it's just pushing people apart. Yep. Loudest voice in the room is heard. And yeah. I think that most of the people <laughs> fall under this umbrella that was just discussed in the past ten minutes. Like yes. I really do. Yes. And, and I, 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 I do agree, yeah. I when I came back in in twenty sixteen to herpetoculture. And here I am, this you know lofty professor who's going to teach herpetoculture. I have to do everything right. And I, I said this on one of the podcasts I was on recently. Like, I was 100% anti-RAC. I looked at RACs and thought there's no way that's valuable. And mm -hmm. then I became the curator of a couple hundred animals, and I bought the first rack. And I tried to get the animals out of the rack – but there's also, you know, species-appropriate behaviors, and whether people want to hear it or not, there are semi-fossorial to fossorial snakes that are nocturnal. Like, these, yeah. there are 2,500-plus species of snake on our planet. There's absolutely going to be a handful that that setup will be appropriate for. There's also species it's not appropriate for. But it wasn't until I actually started using them, like what Clint just said, and seeing the utility, and then keeping with all the different methods with the naturalistic vivaria with the rack systems with standalone rubbermaid tubs with um exoterras uh you know the whole gamut it's just a tool in the toolbox and i like to grow things up in racks and then when they get to a certain size they move to a viv like mm -hmm. that's that that's mm -hmm. my standard operating procedure um here but i just don't but but yelling and screaming and shaming people there's no reason right. for that that that's just completely unambiguous you'll you'll probably get through to somebody about the racks far more mm -hmm. effectively if you have a lucid conversation about what you yes. perceive to be negative than if you yes. just come out swinging saying that they suck and you suck because you're using them and right. i don't want this to be interpreted as like everything i have is in a rack because it's not because mm -hmm. i would never keep a false water cobra in a rack the babies stay in a rack mm -hmm. When they get to, we have had situations here at the university where we had animals that were part of um, experiments and they were in racks too long. Like they, they got to a size where it was definitely bothering me. They're in the rack. And that's when they, you know, we, we move them out uh, immediately. So we, with everything, there's a balance, there's a tipping point. But that was an yeah, excellent I, way I, to I, wrap it up. I, I was gonna just try to wrap it up on a more positive note it. because you know it's easy for the it's easy for the negative to kind of overtake, especially yes. when you're looking at your phone or, or mm -hmm. your computer and you're scrolling social media. It just it does feel overwhelming sometimes. Um, there are days when I, you know, I I try to keep my social media fairly active. So there's days when I know I should make a post and I make a post and I quickly share it into one or two groups and I just like run away and it's like <laughs> I don't want to see anything else that's happening in these groups. Um, because, you know, you see posts in there, someone's asking a basic question, I know I can give helpful advice, and then someone will start arguing with me. Um, so, I, you know, I usually just try to stay out of groups and online communities. Um, 
but I have to say, you know, that I'm not a social person. And over time, my largest, the, the group that makes up most of my friend circle have come from the reptile community. Yeah. And, you know, for all the loud noise of people arguing over the years, you know, I have customers who bought their first snake from me years ago and still give me updates and we've become close friends. And yeah, for all the loud noise, I feel like maybe, like you said, the face to face, um, it just makes such a big difference that, you know, part of me feeling so negatively about the community as a whole is also just where I choose to look. Because I know if I go into certain Facebook groups, if I go into a ball python Facebook group, I know I'm going to see probably the worst that there is to offer in the reptile community. Um, But if I go, you know, speak to someone face to face and I, and I have this relationship that's, you know, built over years and our shared passion of snakes, it's, it is a great hobby to meet really amazing people. If you can, Mm -hmm. if you can avoid the crazy chaos that also, you know, comes with just about everything nowadays. Um, But yeah, I, I feel that overall it's, uh, if we keep trying to push unity, if we keep speaking mm-hmm. out about the divide, I hope that people will come together a little bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I still take away my years from breeding snakes and keeping snakes and putting my stuff out there. I still take away, a, for me personally, I take away a, a very positive experience. Well, and you were certainly one of those amazing people. So thank you so much for coming on tonight. This was absolutely fantastic. It was a nice change of pace from our typical format. I enjoyed absolutely. the conversation. Uh, so if people do want to see you online that are hearing this for the first time, and I really hope that if you were listening to this at some point in the episode, you were like, what is smoldering serpents? And you went on social media and checked out all the amazing photographs that you guys have. Where can people find you and, and get a hold of you and then maybe – if you want to, a, a gentle plug for what you might have available this season. Yeah. Um, so Instagram and Facebook, those are my two pages that I keep up to date and active. Um, like I said, my YouTube channel, is uh, it's been inactive for probably about a year, but I will never take it down. I am just planning on leaving it there, and I, um, I am also planning on adding a couple um, – very heavily requested videos just asking how I do certain things so uh, yeah there's the YouTube channel um, I also have you know for things available I do use Morph Market I also use Happy Dragons uh, a newer website you know more based around um, just a bit of a different way of doing things um, mm-hmm. it's going in a nice direction I think and um, yeah as far as what I'll have this year you know I obviously still like I said have babies from last year and <laughs> And I have no problem hanging on to them till the right home comes along. Um, but, you know, lots of rat snakes, lots of lots of gulf hammock rat snakes. I'm a little surprised they're still around. I guess I haven't posted them too much, but they're just such cool snakes. I'm hoping they'll find some really great homes and get a little bit more popular because I think they're a little underrated. But, <laughs> yeah, black milk snakes, Russian rat snakes, uh, hopefully Japanese rat snakes, calicos, bull snakes, um, corn snakes okatee corn snakes nice 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 little mix of stuff there yeah all right very nice and if you want to find me uh dr crawdad on instagram um zach loafman on facebook and as always this is the forever plug 
You want to go to grad school? You want to go to undergrad and work with snakes? I plug grad school all the time, but if you're in high school listening to this, 400 animals you get to take care of every week. Everything from an eight-foot <laughs> water monitor down to a baby crested gecko. We have it all. Um, sound like a used car salesman. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, no, by all means, hit me up. I've had quite a few people hit me up. Um, and one more time, uh, if you have episode ideas, some listeners definitely have been uh, are messaging me about things. Message Clint as well. Um, we are definitely willing to make episodes based off of what you want. Um, great example was Glenn Brooks talking about the Mad Cats. That was somebody asking for Mad Cats. So we're here to serve you. Um, and with that, Clint, where can people find you? Uh, first, I just want to say, Chelsea, it's been great to actually chat with you. We had messaged yeah. back and forth many times, you know, over the years. Yes. Uh, snakes going, you know, one way and, and then the other way. <laughs> um, so it was nice to finally get to uh, get to chat with you, even though in, not in person. The, yes. the folks listening can't see you, but I can see you. So it's yes. been nice. <laughs> um, all right. If you want to find me, uh, you can check us out on metazotics.com uh, or metazotics on Facebook, metazotics LLC on Instagram. There we go. And I want to give one more shout out to the Marilia Python Radio Network. Um, Eric is currently in Utah herping his little butt off with Nipper, I think Dustin Graham, obviously Justin Julander. Um, so I know that there's a lot of herping going on. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're, we're proud members of the network. We, we're very happy that we found a home here and we appreciate everything Eric does. So thanks, bud, for having us. So with that. Uh, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, or night, whatever time it is, hope you had a good one, and goodbye. <laughs>